back to another episode of what the forensics my name is nicole and like always i am joined here again by the lovely journey and rebecca uh today's episode journey will be telling us all about three different plane crashes and then rebecca will be educating us on the science of forensic engineering and how it was kind of important to um these plane crashes that we'll learn about I would like to note, though, that there is a listener's discretion advised. There are detailed descriptions of mass death and mass casualties and plane crashes, and there are brief descriptions of terrorism and suicide. Um, Terrorism is not the cause of many of these crashes, but it is discussed, so we just also would like to point that out. And suicide is a theory, so there's some brief descriptions in that regard. Um, if you do have flight anxiety, we maybe recommend skipping this episode. You can still play it through so we get the listen, but um, maybe volume down so it doesn't fuel the fire of your flight anxiety. But um, if not, we hope you enjoy this one. And Journey, would you like to tell us all about the first plane crash? Definitely. Yeah, I was a bit nervous talking or like researching this because I get on a plane tomorrow and I spent the last couple of days like researching plane crashes and I was like, oh, no, 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 this is a bad idea. And then 9-11 <laughs> was Sunday and I was like, I, I, I don't want to fly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. But anyway, um, I was only going to tell you guys about flight TWA 800 for this episode, but it was kind of a short case. So I thought I'd tell you about three different plane crashes that are all sort of relevant to forensic engineering. Um, and so I kind of introduce you to the aircraft that was involved, what happened, any conspiracies around the crash, the recommendations from the Transportation Safety Board in charge of investigating it, and then some interesting information about the crash. So again, I just want to reiterate that if you have any sort of flight anxiety, skip this episode, or at least my portion. Um, it was not fun and has definitely contributed to my flight anxiety. So, love that. Um, anyway, the first plane crash I'm going to tell you about is Swiss Air Flight 111, which crashed right off the coast of Nova Scotia near Peggy's Cove on September 2nd, 1998. Um, I chose this one because it happened super close to Nova Scotia um, and the recovery was huge for forensic investigators in Halifax. And I actually learned about it in my DNA class and we briefly mentioned it in episode three, Paul Bernardo and DNA. So that was kind of neat. So, what happened with this one? The plane was a McDonnell Douglas MD-11, which is described as a tri-jet wide-body airliner. Um, Its first flight was in 1990 and was then retired from passenger use in 2014, but it's still currently being used for cargo transportation. Um, I don't know if any of those words mean anything to anyone, but it's basically just a giant plane. On this specific trip, there were 215 passengers and 14 crew members that were flying from New York, USA to Geneva, Switzerland. After being in the air for about 53 minutes, the flight crew started to notice an abnormal odor in the cockpit, and then a small amount of smoke was seen in the cockpit but disappeared shortly after. The flight crew just attributed the smoke and the smell to an issue with the air conditioning system, So they talked to air traffic control, sending out a pan, pan, pan 
which signals that there is an issue but no immediate danger. The plane was then diverted to the Halifax International Airport. However, while they were preparing to land in Halifax, they had no idea that the smoke was actually from a fire that was spreading above the ceiling in front of the plane. Or in the front of the plane. Uh, The plane then altered its course on its way to Halifax to dump fuel, which is standard practice when performing an emergency landing, apparently. And 13 minutes after the weird smell and smoke were noticed, the plane's flight data recorder started to record a bunch of aircraft systems-related failures. So the flight crew then declared this an emergency and they needed to land ASAP. And then only one minute later, all radio communications and secondary radar contact with the plane were lost and all flight recorders stopped functioning. Five and a half minutes later at 10.31 p.m., Swiss Air Flight 111 crashed into the ocean five nautical miles southwest of Peggy's Cove. The plane was immediately destroyed on impact and no one survived. So quite a tragedy. Um, In terms of recovery, about 98% of the aircraft was recovered and it was determined that the fire had started in the forward overhead area of the plane. So a reconstruction of the plane was made with the recovered pieces and it was learned that the fire most likely started from an electrical arcing event that happened above the ceiling on the right side of the cockpit near the rear wall. Um, That's just a lot of descriptive words, but I'm imagining kind of towards like the back of where the pilot sits, that like door wall area um, before where the flight attendants sit. Um. Anyway, the arcing event ignited the covering on top of the thermal acoustic insulation blankets. So I'm assuming just insulation in the body of the plane. And so then the fire spread along the insulation blankets and lit many other flammable things on fire, which sustained and increased the fire. So the smell and the little bit of smoke that the flight crew had noticed um, was most likely from the small fire that was coming from the initial ignition area and then was moving backwards toward the passenger cabin seating or ceiling, I mean. And so as the fire moved back, um, the smoke stopped creeping into the cockpit area, which is why the flight crew only saw a little bit of smoke. And so then... um, This plane wasn't required to have a built-in fire detection where the fire actually occurred, so the pilots weren't alerted that there was a fire on board, which was supported by their actions taken to immediately land and dump fuel. Um, I don't know why this action um, supported that they didn't know there was a fire, because I'm assuming that they would have tried to, like, fight it with an extinguisher or something if they did know. Yes, Nicole? Um, When you say dump fuel, what do they literally just dump it out of the plane? as it's yeah, in the I air think so i didn't i didn't question that actually i didn't look into that <laughs> at all <laughs> yeah okay. i'm assuming they literally just like try and get rid of as much fuel as possible so that if there is a fire or whatever they don't explode once they land maybe oh like i've heard it before and i know it's a thing yeah so apparently it pumps pushes the fuel out of nozzles in the wing the fuel disperses over a wide enough area that the particles evaporate into a fine mist Hmm. oh that's neat okay cool and even though in the investigative report they later mentioned that the flight crew didn't have any way of fighting the fire because they weren't properly trained and there was no procedures in place for what to do in a fire so even if they had known that it was a fire they 
all they could have done was just prepare to land anyway. There was really no way that they could fight it, which is really unfortunate. Oh, and this was kind of neat. There was also a theoretical descent profile calculation, which confirmed that because the fire was progressing so fast and its impacts on the aircraft systems and cockpit environment, they actually wouldn't have been able to complete a safe landing in Halifax when they radioed in at 1014. They wouldn't have even made it to the airport. Holy smokes. I know, right? Kind of scary. Um, so as a result of the investigative report, by the Transportation Safety Board of Canada, it was recommended that the flammable thermal acoustic insulation blankets be removed from the aircraft. Um, there was then new criteria for flammability tests um, on things that were used in the aircraft. They redesigned flight crew reading lights, so I'm assuming that some of the wiring from those lights is what potentially caused the fire. Um, there was then guidance material for dealing with smoke situations. They modified aircraft checklists. And then there was numerous inspections on wiring and components to identify and eliminate possible ignition sources. Um, the IFEN system was removed from the Swiss Air aircraft and decertified. And so this was also the wiring that was potentially the source of ignition. And lastly, there are new Federal Aviation Administration policies that are in place for certification of in-flight entertainment systems. And then just some interesting information about this crash. Um, local boaters were some of the first on scene to help recover any possible survivors. Um, however, only debris and bodies were found. There were no survivors. Um, the flight recorder and cockpit voice recorder were recovered on September 6th and September 11th from a depth of 180 feet in the ocean, which is kind of neat. Um, it took until 1999 for the 98% of the plane to be recovered. Um, some of the cargo that was on the plane included valuable diamonds and jewelry and Picasso's painting. I didn't Google how to say this. Um, <laughs> lay... I'm not even going to attempt it. Anyway, there was a piece of Picasso's painting on there, which only a small piece of was found. What? I, know, I had no I idea that Picasso lost a painting in this crash. Right? I totally meant to Google it and see what it was. So we'll have a photo um, on our website of it, along with the name of it. So you guys can also Google it and pronounce it. Um. And then only one body was intact enough for visual identification. Ooh. Yeah. It's kind of not ideal. Um, so oh, 100 it's Le Peintre. It's like the painter. Oh, cool. It, it just means the painter. I definitely didn't pronounce that right, but that's what it means. Le Peintre. It, it yeah. sounded way better than anything that I could have even attempted. <laughs> Grades one to six, uh, French immersion really helped me out there. <laughs> All right. Grade zero to zero, French immersion for me. <laughs> um, okay. Anyway, 147 victims were identified by means other than DNA. However, DNA helped in all of the 229 identifications, um, which was an organizational nightmare because there were over 2,400 remains recovered and 1,277 of them were analyzed. And I have an image from my class that I'm going to post on our website that illustrates how the identifications were made and how they kind of had to organize it and why it was a bit of a headache for investigators. Um, it was very interesting. And then that's all I have for flight 
or Swiss Air Flight 111. Um, but I think it's something that all of us have re- learned about in one of our classes, at least, because it happened, like, right off the coast of Nova Scotia. Um, and so the second flight I'm going to talk about is the original flight that I came here to talk about, which is flight TWA 800. And so this flight was traveling from New York, but going to Paris this time and in 1996. So it was a few years before Swiss Air Flight 111. And for those of you wondering, TWA stands for Trans World Airlines. So this plane was a Boeing 747-131 airliner, and this specific plane was one of the oldest 747s in service, and it had 93,303 flight hours on its airframe, which is very scary. And so these planes were designed for passenger transport and could carry between 366 to 452 passengers, depending on how the seats were um, lined up or um, set out, whatever. And so, with this flight, it left New York at 8.19 p.m. and then exploded over the Atlantic Ocean 12 minutes later, killing everyone on board. The plane crashed eight miles off the coast of Long Island on the night of July 17, 1996. There were 212 passengers and 18 crew members on board. The cockpit voice recorder ceased to exist at 8.31 p.m. I think I meant to write transmit. Um, just before the plane exploded at an altitude of 13,700 feet. The, the way the plane fell was very interesting because the, like, center of the airplane fell first, then, like, the nose, the front of the airplane fell second, and then the wings, and then the rest of the plane fell. So did it kind of do, like, a big old belly flop? Like, it broke into so many different pieces. Like, the nose broke off, the tail broke off, the body broke off. So, like, the middle fell first, where all the passengers are sitting, and then the nose, and then the wings. Probably because it's heaviest, yeah. Yeah. So, that was really weird. Um, But since the plane crashed just under seven nautical miles from the shore... There were quite a few witnesses, and the FBI actually interviewed 736 people who heard or saw the crash, or claimed to have heard or saw the crash, Um, and it was mostly reported that there was an explosion in the night sky and then a shower of flaming debris, and there was some debate on why this plane exploded, some of which included thinking that the plane was the target of a terrorist attack as some claim to see a missile heading towards the plane right before it exploded. But there's no evidence that that is what happened. And divers worked for 10 months searching depths of about 120 feet into the ocean until all of the 230 victims were recovered. More than 95% of the plane was also recovered so that the investigators could reconstruct the center portion of the plane to kind of find out what happened. And the investigation into what happened took four years, with the National Transportation Safety Board inquiry determining that the cause of the crash was an explosion of combustible mixture of fuel and air in the center wing fuel tank. And so, it's believed that the explosion was a result of an electrical short circuit that impacted fuel gauge wiring in the fuel tank. Um, And then... 
There was explosive residue found in the cabin, but it was kind of suggested that the residue was from an explosive detection training exercise that occurred on the plane recently. I find that very odd because I'm like, well, what if some of the explosives that were in the plane didn't fully get removed and somehow caused the plane to explode? But it's just a conspiracy. And some people still believe that Flight 800 was shot down by terrorists or the U.S. military by accident. Um, And so even though there is no evidence of missile or projectile entry among the wreckage and what people thought was a missile was actually, quote, the death throes of an airplane that briefly went up before it sadly and inevitably went down, end quote, making it an optical illusion pretty much. And so this quote was from commercial aviation historian Shay Oakley, who has like studied this plane crash. Um, In 2021, actually, the safety board's director said, quote, the investigation of the crash of TWA Flight 800 is a seminal moment in aviation safety history. From that investigation, we issued safety recommendations that fundamentally changed the way aircraft are designed, end quote. So I find that very interesting because even though it was a massive tragedy, it resulted in some, um, Changes in the way planes are made and safety for um, future generations. And so then some of the changes that were implemented are eliminating potential ignition hazards in the fuel tanks, which I feel like is a great starting point. You don't really want something that can light a fire um, in the same tank as a fuel. Um, They reviewed design specifications for aircraft wiring systems of all U.S. certified aircraft. Um, the need for improved training of maintenance personnel to ensure proper repair for wiring conditions, um, improved documentation and reporting of potentially unsafe electrical wiring conditions, the need to incorporate new technologies such as arc fault circuit breakers and automated wire test equipment. And so most of those tell me that this plane was just so old and the mechanics or people working on it just weren't aware that the wiring was like broken and unsafe and so they just decided to have better training for the people actually working on planes and maintaining them which is a really good idea and so then some interesting things about this crash was that among the passengers killed there were 16 students and five chaperones on a school trip for the french club which is absolutely heartbreaking because that is not something that you would expect to happen to your children um The website I looked at said this remains one of the deadliest plane crashes in U.S. history. Um, But I believe they're excluding ground fatalities um, because 9-11, again, was, like, fairly substantial. So I was briefly... Oh, yeah. Sorry, I was going to briefly mention about something uh, about that. When I was doing research about forensic engineering, a lot of the like U.S. sources I found did like exclude 9-11 from it because it was such like a, I'm not saying freak accident, it, it was a planned terrorist attack, but just because it was so out of the ordinary for plane crashes, they excluded that data because it was basically just an outlier. So that would make sense okay. that they would exclude that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, so I'm going to post a link to where I got this information so that you guys can just check it. Um, And the plane was used to train plane crash investigators and families of the victims were allowed to visit it. So it was basically reconstructed in like a hangar and people were allowed to go 
not like general public, but like families could go visit it and then plane crash investigators could go visit it. So I think that's where the importance to forensic engineering really came into play was that it allowed them to go and look at this like real crash that, yeah, they can learn from. But in July 2021, the NTSB decommissioned the wreckage and by the end of 2022, it will be fully destroyed, which is kind of sad. But a 3D scan of the reconstruction will be made for historical records, so all the information won't be lost. And the last plane crash that I'm going to cover um, is a bit of a doozy. And so this is the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, or MH370, which is what I'll be calling it for this story. And so the plane involved in this disaster was a Boeing 777, and it's considered the world's largest twin jet. Um, And I just wanted to mention that the angel number 777 is luck, and that's a little ironic considering how this turned out, um, as this is one of history's most famous missing aircrafts. Oh, yeah. So MH370 took off at 12.41 a.m. from Kuala Lumpur, I apologize if I pronounce that incorrectly, International Airport in Malaysia, and was headed to Beijing. So there were 227 passengers and 12 crew members on board the plane at the time of its disappearance. Um, The Aircraft Communication Addressing and Reporting System, or ACARS, A-C-A-R-S, which transmits data about the aircraft's performance, sent its last transmission at 1.07 a.m. before it was switched off. Um, The last voice communication from the crew occurred at 1.19 a.m., and then at 1.21 a.m., the plane's transponder was also switched off. And so this occurred right as the plane was entering Vietnam airspace over the South China Sea. And so the controller in Kuala Lumpur did not notice that the airplane disappeared from the primary and secondary radars. And so when they finally did notice it, they thought that the plane was in the hands of the Vietnamese controllers. Um, And then it was later learned that at 1.30 a.m., the plane turned around and flew southwest over Malaysia again, and then northwest over the Strait of Malacca. Um, So the radar lost contact with the plane at 2.22 a.m. when it was over the Andaman Sea. And so something else that was later learned was that an Inmarsat satellite in geostationary orbit over the Indian Ocean received hourly signals from the flight, and the plane was last detected at 8.11 a.m. And so Inmarsat is just a company, and geostationary orbit refers to the distance from Earth. So it was just a satellite that was talking to the plane. Um So an emergency response was started at 6.32 a.m. because that's when the airplane was supposed to have landed in Beijing. And so initial searches were concentrated around the South China Sea. But once investigators learned that MH370 had turned west, searches began around the Strait of Malacca and the Adaman Sea. Um, So then a week after the plane disappeared on March 15th, the information from the Inmarsat satellite was disclosed And it was determined that the plane could be anywhere on two different kind of arcs. So one arc stretched from Java in Indonesia, southward toward the Indian Ocean, southwest of Australia. And the other stretched northward across Asia to Vietnam, or from Vietnam to Turkmenistan. 
And so the search area was then expanded to include the Indian Ocean, Southeast Asia, Western China, and Central Asia. So it was just a massive search area. And then on March 24th, it was announced that Inmarsat and the UK Air Accidents Investigations Branch had determined that the flight crashed in a remote part of the Indian Ocean, 2,500 kilometers southwest of Australia, and it was unlikely that anyone survived. And then on April 6, 2014, an Australian ship detected several acoustic pings that were potentially coming from the Boeing 777's flight recorder or black box, 2,000 kilometers northwest of Perth, Australia. And so um, the Inmarsat data found a partial signal from the plane at 8.19 a.m. the day it disappeared that was consistent with the location of the acoustic pings. And so then searches were then conducted in this area with a robotic submarine, but no debris was found. And tests of the boat determined that a faulty cable could have also produced the pings. So we don't really know how reliable that data is. Um, the first piece of debris wasn't actually discovered until July 29th, 2015. Um, the right wing flapperon was found on a beach on the French island of R Reunion, um, which is 3,700 kilometers west of the Indian Ocean area that had been searched. And then over the next year and a half, 26 more pieces of debris were found on the shores of Tanzania, Mozambique, South Africa, Madagascar, and Mauritius. Um, only three of the 27 pieces were actually confirmed as coming from MH370, and 17 were only thought to have come from a plane. So we don't know how many um, of the 27 pieces found were actually from that crash. Um, but through the analysis of the pieces from the plane, it was determined that the plane had not undergone a controlled descent and shattered into pieces once it impacted the water. Um, and the search for Flight 370 was officially called off by the Malaysian, Australian, and Chinese governments in January 2017, but the American company Ocean Infinity was allowed to continue searching until May 2017, and then in July 2018, the Malaysian government issued its final report on MH370's disappearance. However, they could still not determine why it disappeared. And so there are many theories about why Flight 370 disappeared, ranging from mechanical failure to pilot suicide. Um, since there was not a lot of the plane recovered, investigators couldn't confirm mechanical failure. No hijacking group took responsibility for Flight 370's disappearance, and pilot suicide was corroborated by the facts that signals had been switched off from inside the plane before it crashed but nothing was found when looking into the behavior of the captain, the first office or first officer or cabin crew. So they aren't confident in that um, idea. And there was no evidence that a missile or projectile was used in the debris found, but there's so much of the plane missing that they, it can't be dismissed along with mechanical failure. It's so strange that like, one, you can have a massive plane just absolutely disappear. Right. And that, like, for me, too, I had never heard of the theory that the pilot had ended his own life. Like, that's a possible theory to why it's disappeared. But I don't see yeah. why that would affect 
Like, why would it, like, if that was the case, why would he do it where they were, where they weren't going to find anything? And, like, why would you kill so many people with you? you Yeah. No, like, it makes sense. Like, the seclusion of it could be, like, a shame thing where he's like, yeah, I'm going to kill so many people. So I'm just going to do it where no one can find because he's ashamed of the fact that. Yeah. He was having these thoughts. But, like, I find it very odd that all of the signals were switched off from inside the plane. Yeah. So unless it was just this group of people who all got together to, like, disappear and live somewhere where no one knows who they are, and just, like, I don't know, mass disappeared. Kind of spooky. Maybe it's aliens. Or maybe it's, like, the TV show Manifest, where we just have to wait until 2024, or this year. This year's eight years since it disappeared. Um... And it'll just come back. I don't know that show, but I'll take your word for it. Yeah, basically a plane, like a whole plane disappears on the way back from, I think it was Jamaica. And then it like just reappears. And so for them, for the people on the plane, no time had passed. But for the people on the ground, eight years had passed. So I thought I just saw a news article about that. Maybe I shouldn't like believe everything i see on the internet because i like read (laughs) something and it sounded like like five years after a plane went missing it just reappeared and came back online i don't know if it's the same thing but i like just saw it within the past two days on instagram oh my gosh you should find that so we can look at it but yeah so i don't really have any specific interesting information for this case um because i find the whole like concept of it just disappearing very interesting Um, And I have an article by The Atlantic in our source list. It's basically a very detailed essay um, by a journalist. So it um, is very full of information and explains the different possibilities and theories. And it's just extremely detailed. So if you're really interested, definitely give that a read. Um, It kind of does suggest that everything was kind of just covered up by the Malaysian government. So just take that with a grain of salt um but anyway this is all i have on those plane crashes um i hope you enjoyed it and it's not too scary or traumatizing for you um but i have photos of the suspected arcs and search area for the flight 370 that i'll put on our website just to kind of give you a visual um because i know just hearing it kind of makes it rather confusing um yeah thank you i mean you did a lot better at not scaring us like the show mayday does so okay that's good that was good that was good i uh, i haven't yeah. seen mayday don't okay <laughs> I, I, maybe i should watch it on my plane tomorrow oh that's fantastic <laughs> yeah that's a good idea that's like what yeah. my mom used to do like i don't understand why she has this horrific fear of flying and yet mayday used to be like the only show we would watch growing up you're just fueling your fear Also, I did a quick Google search. Apparently, the story, I don't know if it's the same story I heard, but the story of the American plane reappearing 37 years after it disappeared is uh, false. It is a myth. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if that was the one I saw, but I'm going to say the one I saw was a myth. Okay. Well, Um, if you do find the one, we'll just like share it on Instagram or something so our listeners can be like, okay, yeah, no, that's the one that is... 
what she was meaning. Very much a myth, yeah. Okay. We can yes. debunk it for everyone. <laughs> okay. Um, sorry if I cut you off. I realized my Mayday comment, you were probably still talking. Oh, no. I was um, done. Okay. Um, but yes, I'm very excited to see, like, I see the posts. We have, like, this PowerPoint that we all are on. So I see the pictures on that. So I'm excited to get those up on our site. Um. But yes, thank you very much for educating us. I knew of like Swiss Air because it was local by the time we were at school. And every time I went to go see Peggy's Cove, because the Swiss Air monument um, or memorial, sorry, is only like a minute down the road, I tend to stop there as well. Um, I didn't know there was a memorial there. Oh, yeah. Like it's a massive rock. It's got all of the their names on it. And it's like... There's a it makes like a triangle or something and it points to the direction of where they found it and you can see the location. Yeah. Oh it's really interesting. I really Yeah, and if you're it. if you're driving to Peggy's Cove, like you pass it on the way. Like it's on the same road, maybe two minutes down. Yeah. Okay. I haven't been to it's Peggy's hidden, Cove in like though. six years. So I'm very excited to go back Are and you, see that. You, your mom and Sheridan going when you're It's just Nova me and Scotia. my mom. Oh, you yes. just you and your mom? Well, yeah. you, I recommend you guys check it out then, because if you do yeah. end up going to Peggy's and you do like the restaurant there, they've completely redone Peggy's. They've put like I saw that. Of dollars. It's really okay. Nice. And I'll take a photo and I'll put it on our Instagram so yeah. our listeners can see what we're talking about. It is kind of hidden. I will say, like, there's only a little sign on the right or whatever side you're coming from that says Swiss Airline 111. Um, and then you got to do a nice little nature walk to get out there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay, sweet. Okay, now I can. Yeah, amazing. Now I have an excuse to go to Peggy's Cove again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, fun fact of the day. So, listeners, watch out on our Instagram and Facebook for that. Um, but yes, thank you for educating us on these three crashes. And Rebecca, would you like to kind of go into kind of how forensic engineering now may have played an important role in these cases? Yeah, I would love to. Forensic engineering is a really broad science. Uh, it's just one of many uh, sectors of engineering, but basically it's the investigation of failures of any machine, component, material, or structure that results in injuries or property damage. So a lot of people consider forensic engineering to be like reverse engineering because instead of like figuring out how to make something work or make something function properly, uh, instead, they're trying to figure out why something went wrong or stopped working the way it should so that they could prevent these problems in the future. So as you can imagine from that broad description, forensic engineers are involved in a vast array of accidents and malfunctions. For the purpose of this segment of this episode, I'm going to be going into more detail about the important role that they play in plane crashes and kind of their methodology in that. Uh, but just briefly, I did also want to note that they're also involved in investigations into things such like uh, bridge and building collapses, uh, accident reconstruction, like car crashes and stuff like that, as well as like geotechnical incidents that may occur from like sinkholes or earthquakes or basically natural disasters that impact the structures that we've built. Um, and then even things as small as like an electrical outlet failure that results in injury. So like if your toaster sparks and causes injury, then they might look into that and see what caused the toaster to spark and hurt someone. Um, Question. Yes. Um, 
Do you think in like that regard that you'd have multiple like communication with different sectors in forensics? Because I know they have like in fire departments, they have like arson specialists who like if the fire came from the toaster outlet or something like that, like would they work together, do you think? Or would that mainly be like the engineer's job? I definitely think they would work together like because I know like the fire department's specialty at least in those is kind of like figuring out where it originated so was it a circuit or was it like a malfunction of wiring within the toaster we're specifically mm-hmm. speaking toasters but obviously it applies to <laughs> other things yeah yeah <laughs> um but at least from what I have found a lot of forensic engineering is like uh sort of contract work but yeah basically they're kind of called in when like there's the realization that there was like a structural failure or a specific mechanical failure of something that probably would have been due to the engineering of it. Um, And then they're called in to investigate and see how they can make it safer to prevent it in the future. Yeah. So for a little bit of history, before I get into kind of the process that they go through to investigate, Um, The very first plane was invented in December of 1903 in North Carolina, but it wasn't until almost a decade later in the year 1911 in the United Kingdom, so across the pond from the U.S., that the first investigation into an aircraft accident had actually been conducted. So I'm not sure if they just didn't care that aircrafts were falling out of the sky because they were so new and they assumed they were janky anyways (laughs) um or if this is just kind of the first recorded like official uh aircraft investigation but yeah so it was 1911 in the uk that they had conducted the first one and the reason they conducted it was because people in the aircraft industry had kind of gotten to this point where they realized that they needed to develop a uniform aircraft accident procedure to try to determine the common causes and ways to prevent these accidents, uh, just because no one had tried to, like, make a strict set of rules to do it before. So it was really hard to, like, work with, say, uh, like, a United States flight that crashed in the UK, like if they're not working together with the same set of protocols, it's going to be really hard for them to actually do any investigation. So after almost a decade of various aeronautical societies worldwide attempting to create their own uniform accident procedures, uh, in 1919, the International Convention on Aerial Navigation was established, and this is also known as ICAN. So ICAN was established thanks to the Paris Convention of 1919, uh, in which at this convention, they passed a resolution that stated that a technical investigation is required following an accident of an aircraft in a jurisdiction that has signed the Paris Convention, no matter where the aircraft originated from. So say Canada signed the Paris Convention of 1919 and uh, a plane crashed in our jurisdiction, even if somewhere that didn't sign the Paris Convention, uh, it originated from that country, we are still required to investigate it as someone who's part of this treaty. So since the creation of the ICAN, aircrafts have become obviously much more complex, and the investigation process involved in their accident accidents, sorry, has also become much more rigorous and uniform just through a lot of basically trial and error and new laws being uh, introduced and also just because we needed them to advance as the science of aircrafts advanced. 
So according to Engineering Design and Testing Corporation, otherwise known as EDT, uh, which is a forensic engineering and consulting company based in the United States, aircraft accidents require a federally mandated investigation with the four phases of investigation being laid out by the Federal Aviation Administration or the FAA, which Journey had spoken about earlier. So the four phases, um, and it's kind of more like four and a half phases, um, are preparation, data collection, wreckage reconstruction, analysis, and reporting, with data collection and wreckage reconstruction sort of being like a two in step 2.5 because they're very similar. So preparation is the least interesting and also the shortest one to talk about. Uh, but it's also one of the most important aspects of aircraft accident investigation because it's kind of what lays the groundwork to ensure it's done properly. So essentially, it begins the moment someone decides to become a forensic engineer and decides to dedicate their life to this kind of work of reconstructing accidents and discovering the purpose of plane crashes. Um and this is basically just every step that they take to learning the policies and procedures and obtaining the proper equipment and PPE and assuring that they can work effectively and knowledgeably and safely on in these kind of investigations while also ensuring that they're personally prepared to witness uh, whatever sites they may see during the, these investigations. Because as you can imagine, with these many casualties, it's definitely not an easy job especially on your mental health if you're not used to seeing a mass amount of uh, deceased bodies, which I'm sure not most people are used to. So the second phase, which is data collection, begins essentially as soon as the air crash, uh, sorry, aircraft accident is reported. So for instance, in the Malaysia uh, flight, it would have been reported as soon as they realized that they had gone offline. Um, so the first set of data that they collect is the time, date, and location that the accident had occurred. Um, obviously, because these tell you where they were last seen, which is very important. Um, and this is followed then by collecting data on the flight route that was planned, the flight route that maybe they took, like, they could have veered off the route, could have been a storm or like it was purposeful by the pilot, um, as well as the type of aircraft, the weather conditions that were happening along the flight path and also in the general area of it, um, as well as the names of all the crew and passengers that were present on board, all of the cargo that was accounted for on board. And of course, we wouldn't know what is, or I guess we would know what's in people's carry-ons, but all of the cargo that we know is present, is accounted for during these investigations to ensure that there was no like explosives or anything that could cause it. Um, as well as any potential witnesses of the accident, which journey you had spoken about with the crash that occurred over Long Island. So all of this generally happens before the investigators go to the crash site to eventually collect more data and evidence. Like this is kind of just the precursor. So they're kind of set up to know what they're walking into. Uh, so following this, when they actually arrive at the crash site, either if the location is known or uh, if it's unknown or if it's in the middle of the ocean, obviously they're going to get there to the best of their abilities. But sometimes if it's in the ocean, it's somewhat unlikely that they may discover much at that time. Um, they will then go and attempt to find more evidence and data that might provide an explanation for what happened. Um 
But before actually going into the scene, obviously they have to kind of section it off to ensure that members of the public can't get into it and can't disturb any of the wreckage. And they also have to ensure that they have the correct PPE because say there's a lot of gasoline in the water, there's a fire happening. Like, of course, we don't want the investigators to get hurt as well. So this whole part of the data collection is pretty much handled the same way that a crime scene would be handled. Um, As I said, they have to secure the scene and everything. And essentially from this point forward, it's almost treated as a criminal investigation. Of course, there's oftentimes not a criminal investigation involved, but the crime scene is still treated with the same amount of seriousness. Do you think they'd have to be trained in legal, like not legal proceedings, but like in that crime scene investigation aspect or realm, like maybe a course that they have to do in school, like we did with ours. I didn't find anything that suggested that, but given how many like uh, bodies and how much sensitive information that they're going to witness, like I'm sure there is definitely courses that they have to go through and like licenses and stuff. Cause you need to know how to actually properly examine a crime scene and not tamper with the evidence on like accidentally and collect it properly. And yeah, so I'm, I'm sure that they probably do need to go through it, but I can't tell you for a hundred percent that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm curious to see like, if it's like, would be the same stuff. Like if they go through like, um, like how to, process a crime scene and like the direction and order you have to like follow and stuff like that that'd be interesting um, yeah, so if any absolutely. forensic engineers are listening let us know yeah absolutely know. <laughs> <laughs> um so despite the phase that i'm currently talking about being called data collection it's also the stage that they collect all of the evidence from the site so like Often when I think of data collection, I kind of think of like sitting at a computer and looking for digital information like the flight path and the date and time and all that stuff. But they are also collecting like all of the evidence. So in this case, like evidence is kind of just being considered data at this point. Um, so some of the evidence that they might collect during these the on-site phase of data collection could include like recording the arrangement of the wreckage. So uh like that one where the it essentially buckled and then fell out of the sky. They would look at like, where's the front half compared to the second half compared to the wings of the plane. Um, and then they'll look for any indicators of signatures of a fire having occurred, uh, any indication of system failures, such as like the communications or controls of the mechanics, uh, as well as like damage to the ground surrounding the crash as that helps them determine like the angle and velocity that they hit the ground. Uh, paint transfer marks, uh, and they also, like every crime scene, as I had mentioned, they take a lot of photographs of the wreckage and the structural deformities that were caused by the wreckage. Um, And they also, uh, I don't go much into this, because it's kind of a whole other black hole of like mysteries. They look into the contents of the aircraft's black box, which is essentially a recording uh, device within the aircraft that records everything that the pilots say and everything that is occurring while the flight is active. And basically, like other crime scenes, they're just looking for anything on the scene that can help them to determine what the cause of the crash was, as well as the severity of the crash. Um, 
as I briefly mentioned before, they do also use uh, the position and the damage of the aircraft to determine what like the likely angle and velocity was at time of impact. Uh, because not always, but often it can help them determine whether or not there would logically be any survivors left. And if there is possibly where survivors may have landed during the crash, um, which I think is really interesting, but also quite sad. But I think it's pretty cool that we can determine the angle and velocity based on like the damage, the position it was, and like the damage to the earth around it that it occurred. So the third phase of the investigation, which earlier I had mentioned is kind of like stage 2.5, is wreckage reconstruction. And this happens after the initial data collection phase, like from the initial crime scene, or sorry, the initial crash scene. Um, And it's an effort to collect as many parts of the aircraft as they can. Uh, which at that point, once they've collected what they can, they bring it to a more secure site on land. If Especially if it's on ocean, it's very hard to see exactly what happened to the aircraft when everything is floating around in the water. So they take it to a secure site on land to be reconstructed to the best of their abilities. Um, so it's at this time that uh, investigators will conduct more data collection. And basically, once it's put together, they'll see, okay, which parts of the plane are we still missing? Uh, like, which, where is there more damage than other spots? Um, just anything you can really imagine you'd find once you reconstruct a plane compared to when it's just in pieces on the ground or in the ocean. Um, and it's also at this point that the FAA may allow third-party investigators to conduct data collection. Because uh, like you were talking about with the Malaysia flight journey, um, they did a they did a flight reconstruction or sorry, a plane reconstruction of it. And then at that point, the American investigators were allowed to continue investigating for a couple of months uh, after everybody else. Um, because oftentimes with plane crashes, there's like one or two authorities that are generally allowed on the site, just because, again, like criminal cases, too many people on one crime scene is, you might tamper the evidence, like the likelihood of that just gets higher every time. So once they've discovered everything they can from the initial crime scene, they bring it in, reconstruct it, and they get some third parties in to kind of see what everyone else has to think. And if there's any like ulterior art, what is that word? alternative uh, ideas for what actually could have occurred. So that essentially is the wreckage reconstruction phase, which I said is, which is why I said it's kind of like phase 2.5 because it's still data collection, but it's like a step after data collection. Um, And then the final phase or two phases would be the analysis and reporting. And again, like a criminal investigation, this is when all of the data that they've collected is compiled and analyzed in an attempt to actually determine the true cause of the accident based on what we know from the accident. Um, And then, of course, once they've determined that, it'll be reported to the uh, appropriate entities, which would likely be the country that it originated from, as well as the country that it crashed in. Um, And if it involved, like, pilot error, then it would also probably go to, like, whoever deals with that. I'm not positive. I'm sorry. Um, But during the analysis, they generally find three main causal factors that might have 
occurred during the accident, which are man, machine, or environment. Uh, while there also could be a couple others, but I will talk about them later. Um, but basically, the outcome of the analysis portion will often determine what steps are next in the investigation. So there are many reasons under the factors of man, machine, and environment that might result in an aircraft accident. Um, and it also doesn't have to be caused by only one factor. And of course, oftentimes multiple factors are involved, which makes it more complicated. So many people often assume that if an accident is caused by a person, it was likely the pilot that caused it. Um, and just some common like beliefs of what a pilot might have done to cause it could just be like extreme fatigue, intoxication, which I've alarmingly heard in the news more recently, and uh, just simply not having enough experience or training prior to actually taking off on these flights. But it can also occur by errors that are made within the air traffic control center, which might be thought about a little less. Uh, so the air traffic controllers obviously have a very stressful job of coordinating all of the incoming and outgoing flights, uh, as well as monitoring all of the flights within their air zone or jurisdiction. Um, so, of course, there is going to be the possibility that a controller could accidentally make a mistake or give one pilot information that he was meant to give a pilot on another flight, which, of course, could lead to an accident. And there, there are many reasons that there might be a problem in air traffic control, but just a couple would be giving the wrong information to the wrong person or simply like Malaysia, just not realizing that they went off the radar because they're so busy with every other flight. So according to planecrashinfo.com, which doesn't sound terribly reliable, but I promise it is, <laughs> uh, it compiles data of all aircraft accidents of commercial flights with the capacity over 19 people per flight and have resulted in at least two casualties. So it's really specific. Um, between 1950 and 2019, that approximately 49% of all aircraft accidents were as a result of human error. This website also provides some examples of common causes of all of the causes, such as man, environment, and mechanics. Um, and I am going to share some of those now just for some context and examples of everything that could go wrong, because there really is a lot, but that shouldn't scare you. <laughs> so... Some common pilot errors, besides the one I briefly mentioned earlier, such as fatigue, uh, would include uh, excessive landing speeds, premature descent, improper procedure when flying the aircraft, uh, spatial disorientation, which could commonly happen if it's like a really cloudy, really foggy day, and it's simply that you don't know what, what up is from down, uh, as well as navigation errors. As for mechanical errors, uh, these can broadly be categorized as engine failure, equipment failure, structural failure, and design flaw. Um, I'm not going to go into those a whole lot because there are obviously a lot of like smaller parts of each of those failures that could individually go wrong or build up to cause one big problem. Um, and problems with the environment, as you would probably guess mostly have to do with like weather conditions and terrain that they're currently in. Um, and personally to me, this is one of the scariest causal factors uh, just because it can be so unpredictable. So examples of this would be such as like lightning striking the aircraft, severe winds or turbulence, 
uh, severe rains that affect the flight of the aircraft or the visuals of the pilot, as well as something called mountain waves, which very simply described is kind of like air and wind patterns that move like waves. So they kind of oscillate around mountain ranges just because of the the very drastic changes in uh, altitude. Spicy. I didn't know lightning could strike an aircraft. Yeah, it it is quite rare. Mm-hmm. And also it doesn't actually result in like a crash every time it happens. Yeah. But there is that like rare time that it like everything goes wrong and then lightning strikes and it's just not great. Yeah. But I am going to share a brief statistic later that hopefully will make you a little less scared of air airplanes, especially because you're flying tomorrow. I'm freaking out. <laughs> when you said, let's talk about everything that goes wrong to cause an, a plane crash. I was like, this is what I don't need. <laughs> I suppose it wasn't a good time to do this episode. <laughs> I know. Oh, well, you live and you learn. You'll be okay. I promise you'll be safe. <laughs> Thank you. So, As I had mentioned a couple times now, the main causes of aircraft accidents are man, mechanic, and environmental, but much more rare, there are also times when sabotage could be involved in aircraft accidents, and this would be things such as like aircraft hijacking or someone breaks explosives on board or being shot down, but essentially all of these would be considered terrorist attacks, such as like the 9-11 attack was clearly a terrorist attack and was an incident of sabotage. Um, But some additional causes that don't really fit comfortably into any of the categories I've already mentioned, just because they kind of, it's hard to tell whether they fit into like one or the other or both, uh, would be something like a fire happening on the aircraft, as Journey, you had discussed with one of them. Um, A bird colliding with the plane midair. It's usually not one bird. It would usually be at least a couple. Um, and actually this is what occurred, um, when Sully, who they had made a movie about, had had to make an emergency landing on the Hudson River, and it's because I believe two geese flew into the engine, so the engine stopped working. Um, and something even just like a plane being too overloaded could sometimes result in an accident, which is the reason that occasionally they ask you to change your seat when you're on the flight, or even just tell you that even though you've booked they've overbooked, which is a mistake on their part, um, and you can't fly at that moment. This is unrelated, but related. The fact that flight companies can overbook a flight pisses me off so much. It's really stupid. It really grinds my gears. And then they make a plane and then stop selling tickets. Literally, it's that easy. Why do you need to sell more? You're just gonna, you just know you're going to cause people to not be able to fly. Just stop. And you can say like, oh, it's making you more money, but it's really not because then you have to give them a free flight where you're giving them seats on a plane that they didn't pay the, for the ticket. Exactly. Exactly. Like, okay. And you like, I wouldn't say you lost a customer, but like you, they're not going to be more likely to fly with you next time. No, exactly. Looking at you, Air Canada. Okay. <laughs> um... <laughs> I'm sorry. I have a grudge against them right now. <laughs> Honestly, they're trash right now. That's totally fair. They lost um, my old roommate's bag for a week. Oh and they like God. they kept canceling the flight that they were going to ship it out on. 
And she's like, I don't have clothes. Like, I need clothes. Like, if I was only here for a week and then I was home before my bag even got to the place where I was staying, like, I'd be so mad. But luckily, I'm here for a month, so you have time to get it to me. But, like, yeah, get it together. I've heard some in the Toronto, their Pearson Airport uh, has not, it's not been good. Yeah, yeah. it's not No, the good Pearson's been right a bit now. of a mess lately. Ever since COVID, really. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> getting off the, the topic of Air Canada, um, <laughs> uh, while a forensic engineer's job is to determine what went wrong with an aircraft, uh, their main goal of this job is to actually determine how accidents like these can be prevented in the future. So if an accident is caused by a mechanical error, the engineers might be able to determine exactly what mechanical failure occurred and then make the necessary changes to it on all aircrafts in an attempt to minimize this risk of the same error occurring again. And Journey, you gave so many good examples of ways that they did this during your three case studies that I don't really feel the need to go into examples because you really provided very specific examples for each case. And I think they can broadly apply to a lot of aircraft accidents. Um, But despite plane crashes being obviously very scary, I am not minimizing that. They shouldn't deter you from using flight as a means of transportation, just because the chance of this happening is so significantly rare that it just, it's almost not worth it to worry about it just because it's, it's completely a freak accident and out of everybody's control. Except the pilot, if they make the direct mistake. Yeah. I feel like it's like those statistics where it's like vending machines kill more people than sharks a year, and yet people are still terrified of sharks, but not vending machines kind of thing. Yeah. Like, it happens, but it's not likely to happen to you, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so according to the Transportation Board of Canada, in the past decade, there was an average of about 4.7 accidents per 100,000 hours flown by Canadian registered aircrafts. Uh, and the rate of fatal aircraft accidents over the decade was only about 0.4 per 100,000 hours flown. So even if we do hear of a plane crash happening, the likelihood that it was a fatal plane crash is still significantly less than that. And then also looking at some data from the United States, uh, specifically the National Transportation Safety Board, there was a 1.3.37 billion, or if we want to go smaller for reference, a 0.00003 out of 100,000 chance of dying in a commercial plane crash between 2012 and 2016. And 98.6% of all plane crashes between 2012 and 2016 did not result in any fatalities. So generally, they are very safe modes of transportation. And just for a little bit of comparison, the gun death rate in the US in 2016 alone was 10.6 in 100,000. So you should be more scared to walk in the United States than you should be to get on an airplane in the United States. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, I was talking to a friend. I was like, recording an episode about plane crashes before I get on a plane is a really bad idea. And she's like, don't worry, like more people die in car crashes than they do in plane crashes. And I was like, that's not helping. I also have car anxiety. And she's like, yeah, well, I, I guess also need to drive to the airport. <laughs> Literally. I'm like, I still have to get to the airport. Thank you very much. You're yeah, just exactly. doubling your chances at that point. That just makes it worse. Of dying? 
<laughs> yeah. you drive to the airport and drive after, yeah. Chances <laughs> increase significantly. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> you're not wrong. But if you're a safe driver, hopefully you're okay. Hopefully. I told my dad, too. I was like, yeah, we're talking about plane crashes and Journey flies to Nova Scotia tomorrow. And he goes, ooh, <laughs> that's not smart. <laughs> No, very dumb. But okay. No. Yeah, we, we probably could have planned this better, but uh, <laughs> it is what it is now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so just to wrap this up after providing a couple statistics, I did have a couple more statistics. That's a hard word today. I did have a couple more statistics to provide, um, but for some reason, I was only finding information as recent as like 2006, and I just, I didn't feel like that's recent enough to really demonstrate like the the probability differences just because even since 2006 like the difference in aircraft and like cars and everything has changed dramatically um but basically the takeaway from this <laughs> is that forensic engineers are very important to the prevention of aircraft accidents uh because without them it, we wouldn't really be able to improve, or at least it'd be a lot harder to improve on the safety of the mechanics of aircrafts. Um, and additionally, even though flights may be scary uh, to a lot of people, and it, it really seems like a kind of freak of nature sort of thing that humans can fly like birds, um, whatever happens is pretty much outside of passenger control, and the likelihood of actually being killed or even involved in a plane crash is incredibly small. Uh, so I hope that this episode did not deter you from flying or increase your fear because that really wasn't the intention of it. <laughs> but that is what I have on forensic engineering and facts. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I learned a whole bunch this episode, I will say. Um, yeah, I don't have any, I was going to add to that, but I have nothing to add to that. Um, well, okay. It's not really like crash related, but, um, will invisible airline or sorry, will invisible airplanes ever be a thing? Do you think? <laughs> no, I don't either. I just can't really see them taking off. <laughs> We love a dad joke. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. Well, <laughs> on that note, our next episode, we're actually going to do a couple part series on cults because we haven't covered cults yet. Um, so we're going to be covering a couple. Well, the first next episode is going to be specifically on the Om Shinrikyo. Shinrikyo. We'll work on our pronunciation for that episode. Anyways, that cult and biological warfare. Um, so I know we did cover Jonestown. Um, this is a bit different, though. We're going to do kind of a whole cult special, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, where can people now find us, Journey, to find more about all of us and our stuff? Um, they can find us at Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WT Forensics PC. Our website is whatthefrensics.ca. And our email is whatthefrensics at gmail.com. 
we are most um, active on Instagram and Facebook. So if you want um, regular updates about what we're doing, um, go there. Um, well, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you are not more frightened to fly planes like some of us. Um, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm-hmm.